Yo, uh, welcome to the Friday Foreplay, and today uh, a very special guest, Leslie Hughes. Welcome back to the show. Delighted, my dear. Good to see you. You too. Uh, Of course, what we do on Fridays, if you don't know, we do this on Fridays. I like to recommend some sort of Manitoba homegrown gold. And it's a book. Today we have your new book. You came and talked about it two years ago. It's out now. Uh, The Dead Candidates Report. Right. You kept the name. I did. That's awesome. Uh, a memoir, Leslie Hughes. Uh, welcome. How are you? Oh, exhausted. Oh. I'm exhausted. <laughs> right. I'm like a new mother. You know. How, mm-hmm. uh, you're just sort of you walk around in a daze when something and really important is delivered, right? And yeah. then you you're not sure what to do next. For sure. Except of course talk to. To people like you who are good listeners, I try to. And yes, you are, Thank and you. who can share um, the joy of it, right? So I'm exhausted, but also full of joy. Full of joy. Well, I don't want to. We're not going to talk. Like I, one thing I don't want to do is give spoilers out. It's such a. It's, it's your story. It's a great story. It's a story that you kind of talked about a little bit on your episode, which is a great episode, by the way. You're an excellent interviewee. Oh, shucks. I, <laughs> it was so much fun. Like, it was one of my favorite uh, to listen to again. Yeah, so good. You talked a little bit about uh, on, the, on that episode, but now it's out, and I don't know how much you want to reveal on this podcast, because you don't want to give spoilers, right? No, no, I don't. But if you could, like, summarize your book. Well, if you look at the cover amazing cover. Who did the cover? Well, it was a, a woman in Spain, of all things. I was I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted a keyboard, because the keyboard, the typing, the writing, the communication is absolutely key here. Yeah. And um, if you look at that cover, and it's kind of, I think it's very haunting. It's shadowy, and there are these keys, mm-hmm. and one key says, make you, and the other key says, disappear. Right, yeah, so that shadow, kind of, in the yeah, shadows. It kind of sums up that this is the story, really, of disappearance and resistance to disappearance and recovery. That's what it's exactly. about. Right. It's, you know, if I were to list all the um, nasty things that I experienced, it would sound like a, a prize sob story, mm-hmm. but it's not a sob story. It's it's a it's a yellow light. It's a flashing yellow light. Yeah. Because I, what happened to me, could happen to anyone, even in a place like Canada, mm-hmm. and a time like this. And I, when I think about that, I, I'm still amazed. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And we're this the story uh, basically starts in 2008. Uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. And you basically. Basically, it's like can- cancel culture. It was cancel culture before people gave it a name, right? <laughs> right, it's kind of. Um, it was an anonymous blogger, and I know an- as a journalist, anonymous sources can be incredibly important and valuable and need to be protected. But I think not when they're inflammatory and exploitive, which was the case here. Yeah. This anonymous blogger uh, had kept a column, newspaper column that I'd written six years before, and mm-hmm. he had put his spin on it because I had challenged the official story of 9-11 he concluded uh, that uh, I thought that Israel was behind the attacks right right and um, which 
wasn't the case is what you no. oh, the no. article itself when I've read this article it's it basically you're just saying don't trust the big government ask questions of course yes like the official story is a red flag it's been constructed it's been reviewed it's been reconstructed it has a purpose and you have to look at it like that before you accept, you know, like, in whose interests is this story being told? Right. In yours? Or is there a beneficiary? You need to check that. It's like saying, who's paying the bill? Right. Right. And um, anyway, he just um, spun, he just spun this as being uh, and he spun it Israel. from, from yeah. the Hughes paragraph. Yeah. The, oh, yeah, the famous Hughes <laughs> The Hughes paragraph <laughs> is is the example that he... Yes, and his paragraph was two sentences, which were clumsily juxtaposed by me, and I blush whenever I think about it. But they were, they were used to uh, categorize me as anti-Semitic and as a conspiracy monger. Right. And, um, and then, of course, you know, the media... My colleagues, my tribe, yeah. right, uh, elaborated on on this posture, and um, pretty soon I was um, unstable, you know, uh, a kook, a moon bat. Yeah. Well, yeah you, you, Actually, you, I got a good quote that you're from. Oh, I mean, <laughs> not what a good you, what like, you got? You uh, you're called a man. If you don't mind me right, <laughs> yeah. man eater, a filth columnist. A dead-eyed zombie for peace, a friend of Saddam Hussein, and a useful idiot. Right. <laughs> Columnist is the word. Uh, wow, that's it's hard to uh, to just yeah. turn your head away from that, and someone's uh, saying that you're all these things, and you know it's not true. I know, and you know, even if you have no ego at all, and it doesn't hurt you, it hurts the people who love you, mm -hmm. and who are tainted by their relationship with you. So it's the old sticks and stones can break my bones, but yes, yes. words can hurt you much worse. Right? Yes. And um, especially what, what people need to do, and I hope that they will do after they have read the Dead Candidates report, they need to go look directly for the evidence. You know, uh, don't, don't give me your eloquence, give me your evidence. Yeah. I need to see why you are saying what you are saying. Exactly, so yeah, yeah. In this case, um, this meant that this message about me went to some leaders of the Jewish community in an advocacy group in Toronto who subsequently demanded that Stefan Dion get rid of me. Yeah, who you just saw earlier in the week, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he it was, was the day before, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. At uh, 24 hours earlier, I was a star candidate. And then all of a sudden now I'm a schmuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's a moon bat right. and, and all that stuff, that list of things there. Yeah. But you know what? These don't really bother me. I mean, I'm used to them. They're just a way, a lazy way of dismissing an alternative argument. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, I need I need information and analysis to have an argument. And I, I don't talk to people like that way the way they would talk to me, yeah. and I don't intend to change that. And, and your book is, is, is great that it explains the story of not how you were feeling devastated, not, I wouldn't say devastated. Yeah, even say, I say it, say it, say it, devastated. Okay, devastated, yes. and also how you wanted to fight, you wanted to take it on and prove you that this, this was not true, 
if you had to like sell your house for it or put a you know go uh, open a second mortgage or whatever so um and that's what i love about the book it's it's a it's a wonderful read by the way Is it really? and i love okay just, i love the, your wordplay and i also love how you start um talking about your love of books oh yeah and then throughout throughout your book you uh drop all these different authors i'm assuming uh, writers who you love and, and uh, like uh, uh, I wrote down a couple hundreds Thompson, Margaret Atwood, Lewis Carroll, and I, I thought that was beautifully sprinkled throughout the whole thing. Kept it really interesting. That was uh, fun. It's surprising. I thought it was really cool. That was fun. But you know, when this happened to me, I discovered something about myself, and that you know, I I, I, co I could not bear to go down in history and however find the print as a supporter of anti-Semitism. Because, you know, I'm a 60s generation person and um, we witnessed the era in which Holocaust survivors found the courage to speak. At first everybody, at least most people, couldn't say anything. It was too awful to relive. And then when when people began to tell the truth about what happened, it was just so appalling. And especially if you are at a sensitive age, you know, uh, and you're in, you're in university, mm -hmm. and you see this. And I think that one of the things that really annoyed and motivated, annoyed isn't even strong, like, motivated uh, my generation was the whole um, uh, unfolding of the information about the Holocaust. And I was damned if I was going to go down, you know, as someone who supported that in any way. I just didn't want my my little bit of energy yeah. co-opted like that, especially because I had worked so hard to do my part to oppose yeah. that that whole anti-Semitic ideology. Yeah, that's why I find it really interesting how you kept your composure, because that would be like the rage would be so so much you know like it would totally i don't know how you could you know keep your wits about you you know like and, and go day to day and you talk about it in the book too you know like it was hard to like shop the co-op or whatever you know like it's hard to go outside yeah it's hard to face people mm -hmm. because look i mean you said you were one thing and now we find out that you're something else Right? Yeah. That's a betrayal of trust and it goes ahead of you wherever you go and it follows you yeah. wherever you go. Yeah. And, and I felt my friends, uh, you know, um, were, were hurt by that deception if, if they accepted that it had been a deception. Uh, and of course not everybody did. But then there's, you know, so, so th this is kind of you follow the journey of what, what is it like when you experience a defamation? and especially a defamation by forces infinitely more resourced and powerful than you are. Yes, exactly. They have the then money to back up their words. What do you right? do, right? Yeah. But I was so confident that I could, I could um, put this aside and reveal it for what it was. Because, of course, there's a lot of political motivation in it. The, um, the blogger who accused me of this horrible stuff. He did it the day after nominations closed, which meant there would be no candidate. Yeah. There would be no liberal in Saint in um, in Saint Paul. Right, right. There's no one to run against, and it, so it's very politically motivated, right. I think, right. as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, at the very same time that uh, Stefan Dion 
was sending out a national press release saying, you know, um, what a what a despicable person I was. Um, Stephen Harper was doing the same thing in Ottawa, although he admitted to the press that he had not read my column. Still, he said, you know, I think it's really serious if you have a candidate who thinks Israel is behind the attacks on 9-11 and refuses to apologize. Yeah. Of course, I'm hearing all this for the very first time. Mm -hmm. But he, yeah. he did the media savvy thing. He got out in front of the story and the media, of course, followed him. He's a tremendous authority figure. Right, right. So, and then people followed, you know, Stephen Harper, like yeah, his words, right? Of course. So it's just like this uh, domino effect. But one of the big ironies is that the media were unaware that they were assaulting a colleague, a journalist, because yeah. I was described as a blogger, which I was yeah, not. Right. Sorry. And one of the things is so that anything that they were doing to me, they were doing to themselves. And that was very distressing because we need, as journalists, more protection, yeah. not less. Do you find in the, in the, the world of journalism, it's kind of like uh, all for one, one for all type of, of mentality? Like people look after each other's back? Like or is it cops, like dog eat like dog? Like what the police do, like oh. the, you know, the, the, the boys in blue, so we're, we're told. Kind of, right? I guess, yeah. No. No. <laughs> no. It, I think it's because um, media people, the writers in particular, are seen as the property of the media owners. And a free press is a reference to whoever owns it. It's not free for me as a writer. It's not free for you as a reader. Yeah. It's free for the guy who pays for it. It's his reward or his or her. Yes, yes, for sure. So um, if you step out of line and you challenge uh, something very important to your employer, you know, bad things can happen to you. You are red circled, you are problematic, mm -hmm. You, your loyalty may be questioned, and it's very, very difficult to speak up in defense yes. of a colleague who is, um, you know, not towing the line. Yeah, and to have to, you know, write on a subject without that having being on your back as far as like, okay, well, what if I, you know, having the freedom to write anything you want without worrying about it. That'll be the day. Okay, here's a question about the book. Uh, in chapter three, you start off with, uh, what fresh hell can this be, Dorothy Parker, whenever she answers the doorbell? I okay. you love it. I don't, under, I don't get the reference. Help me out here. <laughs> Dorothy Parker was just like a, a, a very famous literary figure in New York City, and mm -hmm. I, I'm, I think we're talking 30s to 50s. I'm not exactly sure. Uh -huh. But, you know, a writer and a critic, a, a um, a bon vivant of sorts, and um, she, but she was very um, skeptical, cynical, jaded in some respects. And so, if the doorbell rang or the phone, maybe the phone rang, she would say, "What fresh hell is this?" Right. She expected she expected more trouble. Yeah. All right. And of course, once I got into this journey that I was destined to take, that was my question too. Yeah. What fresh hell is this? Now what? Almost on a daily basis, yeah, right? Totally. Oh my god. And, and it was just so repetitive. The 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 when you feel that you're invisible, you're you're being disappeared. Mm -hmm. You can't breathe yeah. properly, you know, and um, and you're exhausted. All all of that 
So I, I just thought that was so delightful what she said. And then I also quoted Margaret Atwood. Do you remember what she said? I don't remember. Uh, well, um, this is the quote. Before There's a uh, quote before every chapter. Yes. And this yeah. is the quote that I chose from Margaret Atwood. Um, and um, that was when I was sort of, um, I was swarmed by the media and informed that I had been dropped and I wasn't fit. I wasn't a fit candidate. All right. of that was a surprise to me. A scrim. A scrum. A scrum. A scrum, that's, that's right. Which was, which was filmed <laughs> and recorded because it happened right outside the CBC building, and yeah. then which was great entertainment for the rest of the country, you know, all day and all night. Oh, yeah. It was on Absolutely. the loop. Me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, oh, no. Margaret Atwood wrote, and this was in The Handmaid's Tale, I think, um, in book two. Um, she said that you, you you never believe that the sky is falling until a chunk falls on you. Mm, and I thought, yeah, oh, no. yeah. That is so right. Right? <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. And so it, it, was a, it was a long time, it was a long road ahead of you, but you, you drove down it and you, you know, you took these guys to court, you got a lawyer, but you almost lost everything, mm -hmm. right? It was amazing how it all ended, you know? And that must have felt so good. And my question to you is, now you, you got to the point where, okay, I won this thing, I gotta get this label off my back, right? So I gotta get a team together, and I gotta get the word out. And that's another journey ahead of you, to just let the people know. It isn't that it's an offense on me. The thing is, you've gotta see how the mistake is made. You've gotta know what you're looking at. When you watch a witch hunt, or you watch a smear campaign, and of course, you know, in the election of 2008, the Tories have decided to demonize anyone who, who questioned the official story of 9-11, yeah. and uh, conflate the charges that, well, you know, you, you blame whoever, and you're, because you're unbalanced, and blah, blah, blah. And, and it was McCarthyism at play, McCarthyism uh, of the kind that, you know, started the um, better dead than red uh, epoch in the state. There's a, there's a commie under the bed kind right. of thing. Yeah. And, and this McCarthy was the guy who discovered he could get away without evidence, that the charge was enough. Right. People yes. would follow him yes. and shun the person who was ch charged, thinking, oh, well, if there's smoke, there's fire. Not necessarily. Right. So what we saw in the election of 2008 was McCarthyism waking up and stretching and going somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Right? And it stopped with me. Mm -hmm. Right. right. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. That, that, it's exciting to me if people can witness these things. And they're, they're, they'll happen again. My lawyer said, you know, um, it may not happen as often, uh, may happen more gently, but people who behave like this are ideologues, and they ideologues. don't. Ideologues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They stick to their, their. I hate to say, stick to their guns, right. but but they they believe so fervently in what they believe in yes. that they they will not uh, succumb or surrender to something as foolish as logic or okay. or humanity. For sure. Right. Do you find that a lot of people are like that though? Like some people, you know, have a hard 
hard time changing someone's mind. I, I guess I'm thinking about anti-vaxxers and vaccines. That's all the thing right now, you know, and you have like people protesting. It seems like almost impossible that you're going to change these these people's minds, even after they get COVID and they're on their deathbed, you know, which is the craziest thing. Right. You know? Because for some reason, their loyalty to a previous belief is unshakable. They're risking too much. Can't part with it. Risking too much. Gotta stay with with what has been ingrained in you. So it's you, and it's because they just don't want to admit they made a mistake or that they're wrong in their decisions. It's incredible to see people dying yeah. for their for their alleged freedom. Yeah, you know, it's really. Um, how much of it have you written in the last two years, or what what was the process since we last spoke on the book? I would say the pandemic. Um, was a major kick in the pants you right. know, because you know, there was no excuse right. not to Nothing. do what you promised yourself and whoever knows us. There was no excuse not to do it. We had the time, right? Right. Yes. And uh, so I would say this year in particular, probably from March until almost now, I was chained to this chair at this table with this World War II computer, yep. you know, putting this together. Yeah. Um, and, and also, was it because it was released, you know, on the 20th anniversary of 9/11? Was that a goal? Yes. Uh, release date? It was. Yeah. 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 That was a poetic justice thing for me. For sure. I thought it would be fun to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was of course very fitting because 9/11 uh, was the stage. Or if you like the stake to which I was tied and burnt, right? Yeah, so it exactly. made sense. Yeah. There's all kinds of stories about 9/11 that haven't come to light yet. That are they're not the first wave that we saw when it happened, and we are continuing to see now. One thing that's interesting to me is watching the coverage on the 20th anniversary. I note that the focus is still on the suffering of American victims. And I appreciate that. But there doesn't seem to be the connection that, that untold numbers of other civilians around the world have experienced and continue to experience the same injuries, the same grief, the same confusion, you know? Would this be like from the Americans attacking the, the other yeah, countries? Yeah, because, that they thought were beca because of the behavior of the uh, engineers of the American elite, yeah. the American empire, right? right. Everybody, everybody uh, suffers. Now, I, 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 I kind of shouldn't be disappointed, but I am, because I kind of hoped that people would uh, appreciate, you know, that we need to behave differently. I mean, it's not enough to mourn our own losses. It's not enough. Right. You, you, you've got to be alert um, to everybody, you know, and, and look for ways yeah. to just stop being this. To be able to take on a world stage, it's so easy to do. In, uh, yeah. So, for example, um, to go back to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the, the world really stepped up. It was, I thought, they were the most organized and the, the most 
effective protests uh, around the invasion of Iraq because people could see it for what it was. And it was just stunning, the numbers of people who protested. And it was very cross-cultural, cross-religion, cross-color. It was just, it was so exciting to see that. And yet, if you had a voice, as I did at the time, and you used it to protest, then what happened to me? Well, all of a sudden, I was on Saddam Hussein's Christmas list. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> well, yeah, because if this is true, this must be true as well, and it just makes no sense to connect It's to. really hard to, to, to struggle and eliminate that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So um, that's why it's called, you know, a friend of Saddam Hussein, because as a journalist, I, I resisted that invasion. And I was speaking for millions of people around the world, literally millions. And then, of course, what happened is they were just, you know, that voice was just put aside and um, the, the, the military industrial complex just did what it wanted to do. They usually do. As they have so often done, right? Now, you got uh, your son and friend of the show, Jeff Hughes, working. He worked on the book as your editor. Um, (laughs) What was it like having Jeff as an editor? Is he a good editor? Is this something that you had to uh, work with, like uh, one-on-one? Or did you just say, just give it to him and do your magic? No, it was very collaborative. For sure. And I guess because both, like you said, it was over uh, the coronavirus, so you're kind of home together. You asked me, was he a good editor? And I said, he was too good. He was far too good. I wanted to put my hands around his neck and press for a long time. Stop it, Howard. Stop, stop. Right, right. Or I I wanted to say to him, look, you know what? I'm a writer. I mean, it can't be... It's, it's hard to fix this as you're telling me yeah. but he was very very good and I'll tell you what the key was the key was his experience on stage and on drama Right. he knew when I was throwing important material away mm-hmm. in, in the sort of semi-intellectual manner right yeah, yeah. so when I was talking in, in, in court and I finally got a lawyer and finally went through the, the legal process right and I had talked about wanting to hire Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird, that famous Gregory Peck character. Yeah, for sure, And I had yeah. talked about that. And Jeffrey said, no, 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 no. And, and he said, let me rewrite that. Let me just show you what that should look like. And then that whole chapter, all the justice money can buy, which is not very much. Right. Right. <laughs> it starts, Jeffrey sets it in a courtroom with Atticus Finch, you know, railing away about how I've lost my voice and lost it. Yes. And can I bang this table? <laughs> and he, he brought the drama to it, whereas I had left it very gently, you know, on the table. Yes. So, so it, it was his experience as a dramaturge that actually brought certain, several times certain things to uh, a more intense light than I had done. Oh my God, I, he, I, I'm terribly proud of him. But you know, you hear, listen, nobody in the same family should teach you how to drive because you'll kill each other. Right. right. You shouldn't go into a kitchen rental together because you'll kill each other. Right. And the same thing applies if somebody in your family is going to edit, right. edit your work. <laughs> oh God. So, so would he 
be involved in your in your next book. Is there a next book? What's what's the what's the next book? Oh, I have what's no idea because I'm still so involved with this one. But he's he's written a book which I hope you know it's like for a lot of writers, it's just just a thick manuscript right now about his about the tour of the big talk. Yeah, wow! No way! Book, you know, and you know that intimately. Oh that yes, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, very involved. That that uh, national tour of the big toke which exposed all the foolishness mm -hmm. of the demonization mm -hmm. of cannabis and the distortion of law and justice around uh, the war of drugs right right, right sure. so i'm having gone through what he's gone through with me i'm hoping that he will then apply you know um, his experience to to that story and get it out there because that was so far ahead of its time Right. Absolutely. Holy, you really knew what you were talking about. Oh, yeah. And um, so that's what I'm, I'm hoping will happen there. As for me, I, I can't think of anything I can make of except my new baby. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. You gotta, you gotta see, let this thing uh, walk on its own. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know? Once it's walking. You uh, are writing again. You have uh, written for the CBC. Uh, you're, do you feel you ha are back where you started before all this, you know, hubbub came to light, or are you getting close, or if, if you can't, you, you'll never get there? I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think I have been, I think my vindication has been accepted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do. Um, See, one, one thing that's interesting is that if you are um, in a certain line of work and you need people to trust you, to choose to work with you, in a situation where you have been defamed, whether there's evidence or not, um, the people who would normally hire you to do what needs doing, um, they don't, not because they accept that you are guilty, but they don't want to deal with the people who do think you're guilty. They cannot impose yeah. on other people their belief in your innocence. It, it's, it's a waste of time and money. And so you are sort of involuntarily um, put aside. And um, as, as you know, without, oh, I don't want to give anything away, but. But really, the theme of the book is this loop of disappearances. We disappear you as a candidate. We disappear you as a journalist. Right. You know, you fight your way through court, yeah. and then you want to tell people your story so that they will, you know, have sharper eyes and ears and exactly. use their voices, perhaps more than they otherwise would have. You think that when when it's all said and done, with vindication, but no, it's it's a, the whole other issue. To let the people know that you've vindicated. Of course. Yeah. And 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 it's it. I don't know what you call this. It's not media literacy exactly. Um, it's some kind of literacy, and maybe one of your followers will come up with the right expression. So it's a, a, maybe it's a political literacy that people can access when they have the story in front of them. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and in, in my case, after I was vindicated, you know, I think I wrote somewhere, my victory arrived with a thud. 
right? Yes, Ooh. right. Right. Because, um, what? Because people, many people were not allowed to finish the story. And, I mean, a lot of people feel that. They feel they've got stories to tell, and somehow they never get told, and uh, they just accept it. But I did something different. I pursued all the people who ignored me. I phoned them, I emailed them, I texted yeah. them, I faxed them. I actually confronted the people who refused to tell the story accurately. Yes, yeah. that's right. And that, <laughs> that, that was really... Oh. Yeah, that's amazing. That that's, you, you didn't really take nothing or silence as an answer. No, I didn't. And, um, and, and what I learned is that, that we think that we have a free press in this country, and comparatively speaking, we do, but the freedoms we have are still very limited, mm -hmm. and a, a lot of the people who, you know, journalists and media people who have that freedom are afraid to use it, yeah. right? Right. So they were, they had permission to tell the story when I was guilty, but they didn't have permission to tell the story when I had been exonerated. Exactly, and yeah. tear your hair out. And you think, well, what, what is all this for? But it's also going to be a point like where it's like, okay, well, am I the only one who's even remembering this? Like, if no one's getting back, no one wants the, the scoop on, <laughs> on all this? Like, that must have been like, oh, come on. Like, I got to remind the people. Yeah. Yeah. got to remind them what happened. Well, I, I, I imagine like, how driven I was to actually chase my colleagues into their caves and dens, right? Yeah. And say, why did you do this? Why did you, you know, why didn't you tell this story? Why didn't you respond to me? Yeah, You know, exactly. I'll tell you one point, just one funny thing, sure. is that, that I had an expert media team dealing with telling the story after I was vindicated in court. Yes. And one of the, one of the, we, things that we did was we sent it to Parliament. We sent it to every MP, every senator, every person, you know, with political clout and responsibility. We sent it to everyone, thinking they would want to know this kind of thing happens. This is what happens, yes. right? Yeah. And we met here waiting for responses. And this was like early in the morning, like 8 o'clock with coffee, twiddling our thumbs, waiting for it response. Right. <laughs> what we got was a flood of um, do not answer back because they were only the people who were not there responded. The people who were there didn't respond. But the people who were out of office, we got this tsunami of out of office responses. Yeah. Right? Right, right. And we were we, we didn't really know what to do with that. <laughs> but it was it was just so like like, you know, the stereotype of senators, for example, yeah. you know, who don't seem to serve any real purpose. I don't think that's true, but that's our stereotype. Exactly. And yeah, yeah. so this is the response we got, a tsunami of out of office replies. Right. And anybody who was actually there and that and got our message in person disregarded, turned the other way. Yeah. And then, and then uh, yeah, if you want more to this story, you can just get the book. Which, uh, you can get on Amazon. 
Yes. It's Amazon. It's, it's Amazon. two bucks. It's like a dollar ninety nine. Well, that's an introductory price. Woo-hoo. So what does that mean? You get like a, the first chapter or two or something? <laughs> you, you you actually do get the whole book for a dollar ninety nine. Oh, okay. Um, that's the electronic version. Right. Or you can order. It's a print on demand, so you can order a uh, soft cover paperback. Which will nice. get mailed to you like anything else. For sure. And then very shortly we'll be doing an audio book. Well, how, where do you, where would people find the? Is there a web address or? TheDeadCandidatesReport.com. Oh, you got a dot com. Yes, we got a dot com. Nice. You could go there, or you could go to Amazon.ca. Yeah. And uh, put the title of the book in. Right. And uh, do it that way. Yep, that's, yeah. that's great. Something I've noticed is that um, a lot of people think you have to have a Kindle machine. You have to have a Kindle device to get a Kindle copy. Right. But you don't. I think most phones have a free Kindle app on them. Yeah, now, I think Kindle's they? kind of gone the way of the VHS almost. Yeah, least. sort of like that. <laughs> you know, I yeah. don't know a lot. I don't know anyone with a Kindle. No, I did have one, but I haven't seen it for years. Right. <laughs> the DeadCandidatesReport.com. Go check out the Dead Candidates Report, a memoir, Leslie Hughes. Also go check out the, our interview from 2019, which is incredible. Uh, it's when you first came on the show, and we talk about uh, basically your life in Winnipeg, and in the Maritimes, and how you got in the radio, and it was fascinating. I just, I love that interview, and thanks for, the, for doing that then. Thanks for doing this now. This is great. I hope you made your success with this uh, book, and I just can't wait. I hope you do some more writing because I love, I love your words. I, I really enjoyed the book. It was fantastic read. Golly, kept me on the edge of my of my bed. You actually, we talked about you reading a bedtime story the last time, and I kind of felt like you did because I can read it in your own voice. So that's pretty cool. That's great. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. Well, you don't know, have you, you ever heard of Ron Robinson? Ron Robinson is a real. He's a local book guru, right? Yeah. And um, he said he said about the book, it's disturbing and very entertaining. And I thought, yes, that's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> disturbing and entertaining. Thanks again, Leslie. This has been great. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Please. I sure hope so. Yeah, we'll yeah. get you back on. I sure hope so. Yeah, and the next big book. The next book. Oh. <laughs> Let's get this one out there first. Yes. Bye.